So that's Judges chapter 4, starting at verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hogoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. That's Judges chapter 5 starting at verse 23. Curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. Of tent-dwelling women most blessed, he asked water, And she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to a tent bag and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell where he sank. There he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered, 
the mother of Sisera, wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We've prayed those words this afternoon. Your kingdom come, your will be done. But as we said those words, what were we thinking? What were we praying for? What is it to pray those words with conviction? What will it look like if we're people who mean what we pray? Well, today's passage, Judges 4 and 5, will help answer those questions. First, you'll see an outline uh, in your service sheets. First, these chapters show us that we are to praise the Lord for his mighty work. Praise the Lord for his mighty work. So in this book of Judges, the people of God have been rescued from Egypt. They've entered the land God had promised. God told the people to drive out the inhabitants and not to worship their gods. But so far in our series in Judges, we've seen that the people instead do evil. God is angry. He gives them into the hands of their enemies. The people are oppressed and cry out to God. In his kindness, God raises up a judge, a deliverer for them. Last week, we looked at Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. But after that, after 80 years of rest, what happens? Well, no surprise, verse 1 of chapter 4, our passage, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Now, we haven't got time now to read all of Judges 4 and 5, I hope regulars have a chance to read it beforehand. But still, the gist of what happens is not hard to grasp. So let's just uh, read on, verse 2. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So because of the people's evil, they are now in well, big trouble. 900 chariots. That is a huge advantage. That is the latest military hardware of the day. The Israelites have no chance. So Jabin, this king, Sisera, the commander of his army, can completely oppress them. It's a terrifying situation. The Israelites were trapped. There was no way out. But the Lord heard their cry. And as we read on, we discover he raised up Deborah, a prophetess, and then Barak as well. Jump down to verse 14. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Now, this is astounding. 
this mighty army with all its chariots are defeated. So verse 23, on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. So the main gist is straightforward. And the point is also clear. Surely the Lord defeating his people's enemies like this, he is worthy of praise. So there we are. That's the executive summary of what happens. But we need to fill that out. And there's at least a couple of ways we can do that. The first is to pay attention to all these details that also come in chapter 4. Let's just highlight one for now, which is the involvement of a non-Israelite woman named Jael. So the commander Sisera has fled the battle. He's ended up in Jael's tent. And then, as we heard, verse 21, But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Now, I wonder, what do we make of this? I wonder if it complicates maybe things a little in terms of praising the Lord. Do we wonder, is this really God's way of subduing the enemy and giving victory to his people? Well, let's hold those thoughts and see where they lead in due course. But a second way to fill out this executive summary we've already heard is, of course, chapter 5. Now, chapters 4 and 5 are complementary. They're talking about the same events. And chapter 5 fills in some of the details for us of chapter 4. But also notice the genre or the style of chapter 5. It's a song. And it's a song of praise. Deborah and Barak are leading the singing. It seems the lyrics were primarily written by Deborah. And Deborah, if you like here, is showing us or modelling for us how we should respond to these events that have taken place. And the headline, again, is easy to see. End of verse 2, bless the Lord. Verse 3 is about singing to the Lord. End of verse 9, bless the Lord. And so all of this chapter is going to help us praise and bless the Lord. Not least, as Deborah now helps us understand more of what took place in that battle. In particular, the Lord was defeating enemies as he defeated idols. So look at chapter 5 and verse 4, where Deborah sings but explains, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. So chapter 4, if you like, gave us a brief summary of events on the battlefield. But here we're seeing more. What was happening was the Lord was on the march and all of heaven and earth were involved. And then Deborah tells us more. Verse 19, the kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan, a Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. So here we are, the enemy kings, they came and they fought, but gained nothing for their efforts. Why not? Well, we're told heaven, the stars, were fighting for the Lord. We might wonder, well, what did all that look like 
on the battlefield on earth. Well, now we can, if you like, work it out. So the clouds dropped the water. So the river Kishon was overflowing, which means everything turned into a quagmire, which means those 900 chariots were rendered worse than useless. Does it remind you of anything? Just like Pharaoh's chariots at the Red Sea, that cutting edge military technology got stuck in the mud. And so victory belonged to the Lord. But there's more to why Deborah speaks of heavens and the stars and the clouds, because such things were very much associated with the idols that the Canaanites worshipped. So Deborah is singing and showing such idolatry is just stupid. All creation, heaven and earth, is at the disposal of the one true Lord God. He uses it as he pleases, including to defeat his people's enemies. The lesson is, serve the Lord. So, defeated enemies, defeated idols. Deborah also wants to show us that the Lord here is defeating evil. So we heard, didn't we, in chapter 4, what Jael did to Sisera. And maybe we're wondering, well, what should we make of that? Well, let's learn from Deborah. Verse 24, Deborah sings, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. Deborah here is honouring Jael for what she did. Even, you might say, Rejoicing in it, verse 26, Deborah sings, She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Deborah is delighting in Jael's actions. She struck, she crushed, she shattered, she pierced. And then Deborah describes again the decisive moment, verse 27. Between her feet, he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Do you see how the poetic structure of this verse echoes the thud of that mallet as blow by blow, it drove that tent peg into Jael's head. And the scene ends, if you like, with Jael standing triumphantly over the corpse of her bloody and brain-splattered victim. Maybe we're still thinking, can we really rejoice like this in Jael's actions? Well, Deborah then brings to our attention another woman in verse 28. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Do you see what's going on? The mother of Sisera, the commander, well, she's back home. She's gazing out the window to the horizon. She's longing to see her son return once more. But then the words that she and her ladies-in-waiting then speak to one another Well, they're deeply unsettling. Verse 29, her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A room or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. Do we hear what they're saying? Those ladies are consoling themselves by saying, It must be okay. 
we can explain this delay. Surely the boys have won the battle. Now they are simply availing themselves of the opportunities provided. A womb or two for every man. That is rape. And then taking their pick of the fine materials on offer, as if putting on clothing, putting themselves on women, all the same really. They even seem to care more about the clothing than the women. But it's just enjoying the spoils of victory. The Oscar-nominated film, The Zone of Interest, well, it's set in the home of Rudolf Huss and his wife, Hedwig, as they go about typical family life with their five children. But Huss is the commandant of the Auschwitz concentration camp, and their home is right next door. In fact, their garden backs onto the wall of the camp. And as the children play, you can hear what is happening the other side. Even you can smell it. In one sea, we see Hedwig trying on a fur coat for size, which of course was snatched from a Jewish woman on her way to the gas chamber. And Rudolf plays with his children. And then in a meeting, ponders how to make the gas chambers more efficient. You see, our world is full of evil. Men like Sisera do evil things. There are evil women, like his mother, who see no problem in that. In all of this, the creator is rejected, and it leads to all manner of horrific behavior. Still today. And so the question is, if there is a God in heaven, what would we want him to do? Do we think we should, he should let his creatures stick two fingers up at him forever? Do we think he should leave us to our choices forever, no matter who gets hurt or maimed or killed in the process? Or would we want a God who brings honour to his name, who steps in to put an end to evil, who protects his people? See, as Deborah puts jail and Sisera's mother side by side in her song like this, in her song, she is presenting us with the stark alternative. Would we rather what Sisera does to innocent women or what jail does to Sisera. And even if right now we are thinking we can come up with a third way in which neither of those things happen, are we really claiming to be wiser, more compassionate than God himself? Well, Deborah concludes with verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Do you see, Deborah is praising God that he intervenes in our world, that he takes care of his people, that he destroys his enemies. And Deborah longs for the Lord to do more of the same. And with that, Deborah commends the friends of God, which here includes that non-Israelite woman, Jael. People like that who attach themselves to the Lord and then act for his sake. 
A couple of weeks ago, it was suggested to me that what we're seeing here in Judges is the Old Testament God, quite unlike the God who reveals himself in Jesus. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 11, page 1243. Keep a finger in Judges. Revelation 11, page 1243. What is being heard in heaven? Revelation 11, verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who was, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. What else will be seen in heaven? Turn on to Revelation 19, page 1249. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. We are praying for that prayer to be answered. Evil must be defeated. Enemies and idolatry must be no more. And the good news is God will answer that prayer and we will then praise him for his mighty work. Second, this passage shows us, offer yourselves for the Lord's mighty work. So the book of Judges is given to us today, New Testament Christians, to train us for war. That's why God has given it to us. What does this war look like? Well, with the coming of Jesus, the battle remains. But the Apostle Paul tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And in that passage, Ephesians 6, Paul goes on to explain that the weapons, the armor we have are the word of God and prayer and the gospel of Christ. So then, what do we learn from Judges 4 and 5 about engaging in this conflict? Well, let's go back to those details in chapter 4 and look at the build-up to the battle with, between Jabin and Sisera. So Judges chapter 4, if you've lost it on page 244, Judges chapter 4, and let's uh, pick it up at verse 6. So Deborah sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. 
and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So those are Deborah, the prophetess's instructions from God. They are plain. How will Barak respond to them? Verse 8, Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, what do we make of that response? Is it a positive response or a negative one? It's at least initially ambiguous, maybe intentionally so, designed to get us think, to think. And we might have thought that sounds actually positive. If you're thinking that way, the logic might run like this. Well, Deborah was a prophetess, which means God was with her. And so Barak's desire for Deborah's presence could be expressing a dependence on God. And we might even remember that Moses said something similar back in Exodus. But then we read on and Deborah responds to him in verse 9. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So we can tell Barak's response was not all bad, but it wasn't quite right either. And there'll be consequences for who defeats Sisera. Now, the question for us is why this little interaction between Deborah and Barak here? Well, at the very least, it raises a couple of issues for us. First of all, who will get the glory? And yes, there is human involvement and this not just one, but two women involved. We've seen that, how that works out. But ultimately, of course, the answer is it's the Lord who gets the glory, all of it. So that by the end of Deborah's song, it's the Lord we are praising. But the second question issue that is raised is about the human involvement. How should people respond to the call of God? How should Barak have responded to Deborah's message? That is the question for us as we read on. How should people respond to the call of God? Before we do move on, though, it's worth saying, Barak, yes, he may not have got it quite right at first, but his overall response is to be imitated. He courageously led the people into that battle where the odds were completely stacked against him. Barak did trust the Lord. So no wonder the book of Hebrews tells us, be like Barak. But then also, before we move on, notice Deborah. What a remarkable woman. We're told she judges Israel with wisdom. She speaks God's word. She is courageous and goes up with Barak. And in her song, she praises God for his mighty works. So all of us, men and women, should be like Deborah in these ways. But with that question of ours in mind, how do we respond to the call of God? We come to chapter five. Remember, this is supremely a song of praise to the Lord. But did we notice its striking opening? Verse two, Deborah with Barak sings that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offer themselves willingly, bless the Lord. That is why they are praising God for the people's willing response. Comes again, look down to verse 9, where Deborah in particular says, My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel 
who offer themselves willingly among the people, bless the Lord. You see a theme developing? Offer themselves willingly. And so there's more of it in the song. Now, back in chapter 4, we heard a couple of times that 10,000 men of the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun were the ones to respond to Barak's call to go to battle. But in the song of Deborah, it turns out that the other tribes of Israel were also called on to join the campaign. So if you look at verses 14 and 15 and look at the details maybe later, you hear of the tribes of Ephraim and Benjamin and Issachar. They all also responded positively to the call to go to battle. But not so positive was the response from the tribe of Reuben. Let's pick it up in the middle of verse 15. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. That is, Reuben, the tribe, heard the call. They weighed up how to respond. They formed a committee and they talked about it. But no action. They stayed where they were. And Reuben were not the only ones. Verse 17, Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. So Gilead, he's actually a college, and at his college, a few students were just trying to get a Christian union going. But Gilead stayed out of it. Then there was Dan. In his workplace, there was a group of believers starting up a little Christian meeting, wanting to reach out to others. But for Dan, you see, there was, well, the work, the business, the ships, so he couldn't join in. Then there was Asher. His RML group were planning, meal, short talk in a pub for events week. But even before the discussion, he had basically decided, that sort of thing is just not for me. So Gilead, Dan, Asher, they all had their reasons. But the theological explanation for what they do is this. They just couldn't be bothered. Instead, Deborah goes on to sing, look to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. We're in verse 18 where she says, Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali too on the heights of the field. So here is why Zebulun and Naphtali are the tribes that were named in chapter 4, because they were all in. They knew the risks, but they came forward. They stepped up. They took responsibility. They were fully on board. Now, reading verse 18, we might say, well, oh, this talk of risking lives, that's a bit excessive, is it not? But of course, then we remember the words of Jesus. If anyone, anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And those words of Jesus aren't for the extra keen follower. If anyone would come after me, says Jesus, there'll be loss of life. So Zebulun and Naphtali are here for us to emulate we still haven't quite finished with Deborah listing the responses of those in the land. There's one more, and I'll warn you, it's a highly sobering one for us. Verse 23. Curse Meroz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly. 
because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Now, Meroz is the name of a town in Israel. Probably they were minding their own business, going to church every Sunday. And yet, did you notice we're told the angel of the Lord himself intervenes to pronounce a curse on Meroz? So we ask, well, what evil did Meroz commit to deserve such a judgment? And the answer is, Meroz did nothing. So probably it means Meroz was very well placed to join in with what the Lord was doing when Barak's call went out. But it was a busy time of year. Oh, in principle, of course, Meryl's would have been delighted to help, of course. But in practice, and maybe this was always the way, Meryl's did nothing. And for that, Meryl's was cursed. Now, in our series in Judges, we've heard repeatedly in our series about the evil of the people, the judgment it deserves from God. And without really thinking about it, I wonder, did we just assume, without even thinking about it, that's just the kind of evils other people do, those terrible things that I hear about? Not me, of course. And yet, reading verse 23, what happens to Meros shatters that sort of complacency. We need to ask ourselves a few searching questions. Are we always too busy, it seems, to meditate on God's word? to meet with others, to pray. Because like Meros, we too are placed very close to the battle. We are in the midst of needy people all around us who need to hear the hope of the gospel held out to them. And in principle, of course, we all agree with that. But in practice, does it turn out that we never seem to give any meaningful time take any initiative, show any courage in supporting the spread of that gospel or of speaking of Christ ourselves. Do you see the warning here that if such inaction becomes ingrained in us consistently over time, then what should we conclude? Because the question the book of Judges would have for us is, well, well what are we so busy with? Or to put it in judges' kind of language, what are our idols that seem so constantly to be the ones to whom we're paying tribute and giving all our attention? The Lord God's instructions to us, his people, from Jesus are clear. Go and make disciples. What does it say about our attitude to the Lord, the one true God, if we are failing to listen and to do what he says almost ever? The call is to offer yourselves willingly to the Lord's mighty work. And we've seen in this chapter a range of responses to that call. I'm sure all of us now are aware at the very least of moments, if not more, when we have stood back. We've ducked the challenge. We've evaded that responsibility. We saw what needed to be done, what should have been done, but we didn't do it. We didn't take up the cross to follow Jesus. But so then, let's look again at the one we are following, Jesus himself. He kept going. He taught the prayer. 
your kingdom come, your will be done. But he lived it. He was determined to make that happen. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, even to offer himself willingly to give his life. Remember Gethsemane, Jesus prayed again, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so sure enough, soon enough, they led him away and crucified him. So we could say Jesus could be bothered. He stepped up. He was so courageous. He took responsibility. In Judges, we've seen Now, Eglon and Sisera, both, they were pierced through because that is what they deserved. Jesus should not have been pierced through, but he was. Because our sin, our failures to offer ourselves willingly, have been pinned on him. He faced God's crushing judgment on our behalf. And so he rescues us from what we deserve. Jesus accomplished the Lord's mighty work. It is finished. And in Christ, we are his people forever. So how will we respond? Praise the Lord for his mighty work in defeating enemies, idols, and evil. And then offer ourselves for the Lord's mighty work. Let's pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Our Father, we do praise you for the mighty work you achieved through the life, death and resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus. We praise you that ultimate victory is now assured, that one day evil will be no more and the joys of the kingdom will be experienced in full. Until that day, would we offer ourselves to your ongoing work of the spread of your kingdom in all the world? For Jesus' sake. Amen.